This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and this is a Backstage Pass episode, one of the ones where we chat to one of our Patreon supporters about their path through metal, their life in metal, and about an album that is special to them. And today's guest is John Mason. Say hello, John. Hello, guys. Welcome. Yeah, you are very welcome. So uh, before we get into the album that we're going to talk about, tell us a bit about yourself uh, and tell us, you know, sort of how and when you got into metal. Where did your journey start? You bet. And first of all, thank you guys so much that you do this. It's so much fun to talk with other people about uh, the journey into music, right? And um, to take the time to do something personal for your fans, I think is pretty neat. So I'm a rocker, I'm a roller, I'm a right out of controller, to quote Bon Scott. Um, uh, I was born in 75, so approximately your guys' age, married 22 years, three kids. I used to be a newspaper reporter, a journalist back in the day when papers were a thing. And huge Warren Ellis fan, so therefore a huge Spider Jerusalem fan, was super inspired to be a journalist after that comic, Transmetropolitan. Um, was a drug and alcohol counselor for a number of years before right now my wife and I opened a nano cidery. We make hard cider. And on our property, we have a tasting room. And I run that. So I'm kind of a bartender today. Um, wow, so that is. Now, yeah, <laughs> let me just say, that is a hell of a life path. I was going to say, that's a journey. <laughs> it's been fun. What's funny is the journalism and the um, drug and alcohol counseling, boy, they come in hand, hand in hand when I become a bartender. It's like almost exactly the same skill set. Talking to strangers and getting them to open up, it's pretty easy, especially after wow. a couple of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyways, so, what about uh, music then? Yeah. Yeah. So, I was raised. Um, in a by a conservative Christian mom, she uh, divorced when I was five. So I was raised by a single mom. She was the wild child in her family of pa- you know pastors' kids. So she tried her best to really keep me on the straight and narrow. And so I'd say all that because the environment I grew up in, again, single mom doing her best. Um, you know, I went to Christian school, wore a tie, uh, quoting scripture. I would get scripture quoted to me when I was spanked. That's kind of an overstatement, but I'll never forget. The heart of a child is bound in foolishness, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him as she's using the wooden spoon. So the unspoken rule I learned as a kid is avoid sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Um, I had you know zero exposure to metal and hard rock. She was a Beatles nut, so 100% you know, my exposure to rock and roll was through the Beatles. I completely cut my teeth on uh, Abbey Road, and to this day, I absolutely love them. But as far as hard rock and heavy metal goes, we that was just never ever on my radar um largely because the environment i was in and and i know you guys remember but the satanic panic in the 80s was a very real thing in the christian community and i grew up in the shadow of that um you know we were told that acdc stood for antichrist devil's child right or that kiss stood for knights in satan's service um i don't know if you guys remember that but i remember oh yes 100 percent yeah yeah <laughs> That, I mean, and so as a little impressionable kid, you're just like kind of taught to believe that all these bands at the same time all worship Satan, right? Um, so, you know, every other wood desk in my public school had, uh, you know, Anarchy A carved into the desk or ACDC, uh, Ozzy, and then, of course, the ubiquitous Van Halen symbol, the VH. So in my head in the early 80s, I mean, they were all heavy metal and it was all, you know, scary, supposedly, Right. So then I, when I came into metal, um, you know, I was, I was ignorant, full of misinformation, 
uh, it was 1986. I was in sixth grade, so you're hitting puberty. And I'll never forget, um, we went to a really big school, and we were just completing PE class. We were in the gymnasium. And one of the PE teachers had a giant boombox playing all the way up to 11. It was loud and reverberating through the whole gymnasium. And you know how uh, gyms are as far as volume goes. And they had it on OK95, the uh, local rock radio station. And this is really embarrassing. But the song they were playing, it was Rock the Night from Europe. Do you remember that song? <laughs> Dude, yes. that's a great tune. Yes. Remember it. I love that song. I'm kind of embarrassed by it because uh, I just watched the video last night just to refresh my memory, and it's painful. Um, I mean, Joey Tempest. I'm sorry. Who? What lead singer's name is Joey Tempest? But <laughs> don't get me don't get me on a Europe rant because I will go on one. They're they're actually working on a new album right now, and their last couple have been amazing. I'm, so trust, trust me, I'm not like against them. I'm saying that was my first foothold, and I'll never forget, man. I will. By the way, they get a bad rap because of the final countdown, but I will never forget the crunch of that guitar. The riff to "Rock the Night" was so loud in the gym. That it, it grabbed me from the inside. I mean, I, I think all of a sudden there was this awakening in me like, what is this? It's loud. It's crunchy. Those are two of my favorite things in a song. Uh, I couldn't help but move. And I remember as soon as I heard that, I mean, it was stuck in my head. I ran home, turned to OK95, got a blank cassette tape out, and I just was waiting for that song to come on again so I could record it. Right? This is before you can have easy access to stuff. And, uh, of course, doing that, I was exposed to a lot of music. Um, I remember hearing Anarchy in the UK from Megadeth, like the cover of that in 1986, and just started banging my head like out of nowhere. I, I don't know what was happening. But around then is when my attention started getting turned to this whole world of music that I knew nothing about. So all of a sudden, MTV was everything to me. Um, from 1987 to 1994, I was consumed with rock and what was considered metal at the time. Um, totally oblivious to the bands that came before me. I just was wide open to anything that rocked. Whatever that definition is, guys, right? Whatever that uh, intangible something that you feel at age 12 or 13, it's like, holy cow, this is who I am and this is, this is what I want for the rest of my life. So, uh, you know, my mom like I mentioned, was divorced a couple times, so I was a latchkey kid quite a bit. So I was left completely to my own devices watching MTV like crazy. And I remember, you know, because of the home I grew up in, like hiding my Def Leppard cassette under my bed. Um, you know, I remember, uh, um, well, I, I just remember it just, there was so much music to be exposed to that I didn't even know about. Um, I, a friend of mine, we were watching MTV and Kiss had just released Re Reason to Live. And I was watching the video with him, and he was explaining to me the Kiss legacy, um, which, as a Christian kid, of course, I'd been terrified of them, right? Um, but I, you know, I learned to raise the horns whenever Gene Simmons came on the screen. <laughs> and I, like I just, this is what you do, man. And uh, then around then, David Lee Roth released a skyscraper, and I didn't know who Van Halen was. And he's explaining to me, hey, this guy used to be the lead singer for Van Halen. I just want to reiterate how little I knew about anything. But 1987 is really when the hooks got in. Um, you know, as I got older, going into high school, I discovered really discovered Van Halen in '91, before the Black Album, before Nevermind, before all that stuff came out, and uh, I was all in with rock and roll. Um, I mean, there's a whole story with that. You know, in the '90s when grunge and alternative was huge, I was the only kid in, in high school that was all about Van Halen. I was <laughs> never trendy. I've always been behind the times. Um, I, you know, 
the nice thing about rock is like there's a nice lasting legacy of albums to go back into. So whatever's current or popular didn't matter to me. I had a wealth of albums to be diving into. So um, today, you know, as that journey got me to, to now, um, I love loud. I love crunch. I define metal as something I can drive long distances to with a smile on my face. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm exposing my kids to it, but you know, my oldest likes modern hip hop and rap and I, I like Ice Cube and I like Beastie Boys, but the modern stuff is just agony for me. But Chris Cornell, of all people, uh, was describing that like modern hip hop and whatnot. I mean, the kids are supposed to rebel against their parents' music. So modern music really is modern rock and roll to them. And that really changed my perspective. So my oldest likes that. You know, I've been exposing them to hard rock. Um, You know, my middle kid. Uh, well, I got a whole other story to tell, guys, and maybe you can cut this out. I'm sorry, but all all that's to say is the journey started from kind of uh, hidden roots and just exploded into today at age 47. Somehow, I still have hair and I still bang my head like crazy. I just, I absolutely love rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, listen, man, there's nothing. You know, we all have to start somewhere, uh, and yeah. f- for all that they get stick for you know the the perms and uh you know the synthesizers and what have you europe wrote some great songs you know they they knew how to write a really really good song so i mean yeah you know rock the night is not what i would choose <laughs> if somebody said yeah. hey play me a heavy metal song but Watch like it. i said you you gotta start somewhere uh no i'm saying because i'd choose the final countdown if i had to choose any europe song it's like yeah, i mean the final countdown is a great song it's an awesome song but, you know, your point about and, and I think, you know, the idea of like everybody comes in somewhere, right? It's yeah. a song on the radio. It's a video on MTV. It's, you know, in my case, like, you know, other kids that you meet that are introducing you to new music and stuff like that. I was buying cassettes off of someone in middle school because I knew my mom wouldn't, you know, let me buy yeah. stuff uh, at the <laughs> store and things like that. And so it is. But I think that all of that just reinforces this idea of. Um, one thing which you talked about, which is that once you kind of come in the that door, however you find your way in, there's so much to explore, right? There's always yes. so much to catch up on. Yeah. There's always so many different things to experience. Then you start to push the boundaries of what it is that is your like wheelhouse of like what are the things that really resonate with you the most. And then you start oh. kind of testing, well, what about if it, if it went a little more aggressive or a little bit faster, or what if I dialed it back a little bit? And so you end up finding like you dial into like what your um, specific taste is. But I, you know, it's just that whole idea of we've said before, and, and Anthony, you've said multiple times, like metal is a, is a broad church, right? And so just that idea yes. of there's so many things to explore in what we consider to be rock and metal that it doesn't matter how you come in because there's you're going to find what really resonates with you eventually yeah well, and, well, and also yeah. well, well and i was just going to say there's one thing you said in there john that really kind of struck me as like ah this is a universal truth and that is when you said you know it was loud crunchy and it made you want to move yes and that everybody i know who got into rock music specifically, you know, even more than pop music, rock music. It's, it's that it's something visceral. It's something physical. It's a physical reaction. It is a, uh, an inexplicable instinctive bodily reaction that just makes you go, I want to move to this. And I don't yes. really know why, <laughs> yes. but that's what gets you in. Well, it's, it's intangible. It's spiritual for lack of a better word, right? The spirit moves you. There's, there's, you're moved. 
if, if it's done well, there's nothing like it. Well, and, um, and I just want to you know, I just want to touch base on that because you mentioned that and I, I would, you know, there's a whole other conversation to be had about like the Christian school to metal fan pipeline. Um, yes. But I think that, <laughs> you, you know, just in terms of like what you just said it too, Anthony, which is like it it is it is spiritual and it does resonate with you on like this visceral level. And I think especially for those of us, because I was a Catholic school kid, I think for those of us that were, um, you know, that went to a Christian school kind of growing up, you're always told. And so much of what you hear every day is, is built around this idea of like being spiritual and being moved and having, you know, having this connection. And then for those of us that ended up gravitating towards sort of rock and metal, the first time you heard something that created that sort of reaction that you'd been hearing about your whole life, in terms of like what you know th- this connection to the divine or whatever right that that you're supposed to feel and then you find it through music and you're like holy crap this is, must be what they've been talking about right when you finally yeah. like hear something and you're like oh my god like that all these you know this sort of conversation of being moved like i just felt that now when i heard that riff or i heard that yes. song um and i think it has a profound impact on on uh well it definitely did for me for sure absolutely and i can i say i I wasn't trying to disparage europe it's just weird that (laughs) after that that mark they didn't really make an impact on me like i got the final countdown i listened the whole album and loved it but then i quickly moved on because there was so much more to explore and in in america europe was giant in 1986-87 and then they kind of basically disappeared by comparison you know they were on mtv ubiquitously and then they were gone. I think that um, was true everywhere outside of Northern Europe, to be honest with okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but man, there's something about that crunch when it's turned to 11 in a gymnasium. It's like being at a concert and <laughs> there's nothing you can do but move. You have to. I, like, as Lemmy sang, the new religion, the electric church, is yes. the only way to go. <laughs> there's a motorhead lyric for everything. There really is. <laughs> I mean, okay. you also oh. you, you also talked about like saying yeah you you were never never fashionable one of the trendy kids. I mean that is also a very very common story amongst yeah. metalheads, especially isn't it? You know that we were the outcasts. We were the ones that didn't have as many friends. That were the weird kids in recess. You know all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think because and i wonder especially now now that metal is relatively mainstream compared to where it was in the 80s and even 90s um you know then it was kind of a natural progression if you like for the weird kids like us to get into something that was a bit underground a bit of a subculture and that's not really the case anymore so but then again i don't know Maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, mischaracterizing it because, as you say, John, you know the the kids these days are all into R and B and hip hop and stuff like that, and what you know the charts are still not exactly full of heavy metal bands. So yeah. maybe it is still a bit of an underground thing, relatively. Uh, well, it, it certainly is to the my kids' generation. I mean, I'm a total weirdo, you yeah. know, by comparison. Um, and, and to your point about the fashion. I got to tell you, so I, I think 1991, 1992, grunge is huge. Everybody's wearing flannel. Everybody's got ripped pants, yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm, I've always been a fan of ripped pants, by the way. That'll never change. But <laughs> but being a Van Halen fan, I had watched uh, their 1986 Live Without a Net video. And in it, Eddie Van Halen's wearing these neon pink parachute pants. 
And I thought he looked so freaking cool, right? Because, well, he's Eddie Van Halen. And so I bought a pair of neon pink parachute <laughs> pants that I'm wearing in high school in 1992. And I just want to highlight how uh, 1986 did not match well with 1992 at that point. <laughs> and I will never forget this beautiful girl. I was you know, at school and she just says, nice pants to me. And I said, I just, well, thank you. And I just kind of like, you know, they're Eddie Van Halen and da 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 And I realized years later that she was being sarcastic, that that was not a problem. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> uh, is, uh, that the, it, is that the video with Sammy Hagar? Correct. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. A friend had that on video. I've only watched it once, but I have seen that video. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, why he looked cool wearing those pants is because he's Eddie Van Halen. Like, I don't look Right, cool. it's not the pants. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, um, all right, I mean, uh, I think anybody who's heard us talk now and sort of has looked at the show art knows that you're going to be talking about a Van Halen album. Uh, before we get to that, though, tell us a bit about um, being a fan of the show. When did you first start listening to Thrash It Out? Absolutely. So, Brian, you were on the Dreamland podcast several years ago. The uh, episode was called Sell Out When Metal Goes Mainstream. Do you remember that? Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. Wow. That was a. am trying to think of how many years ago that was now. I think it was uh, 18 or 19, 2018, I think. Yeah, it's got to be at least four years now, I would think, right? Yeah, at least. And uh, so I'm a fan. I mean, Melinda's awesome. I, I love that podcast. And I know she's a huge Slayer fan. I know she's a huge Megadeth fan. And so when she did this episode on When Metal Goes Mainstream, I was thrilled. I couldn't wait to hear what she had to say. And she had you on as a guest. And I remember um, you were starting to talk about Def Leppard. And I braced myself because I thought, oh, man, you know, they're such easy targets for the metal fans. You know, Slayer fans are definitely going to eviscerate Def Leppard. And I'm a huge Def Leppard fan. Uh, then Adrenalize came out. And I, it's a whole other story. Mm, uh, yes. <laughs> but uh you didn't say anything disparaging i i couldn't believe i mean now i know of course what a fan you are and high and dry is my favorite album and i loved it and she just was raving about thrash it out so i went over immediately checked you guys out i think the first episode i heard was the euthanasia episode and then i jumped back to saint anger but when i got there um i was shocked to see that anthony johnston was your co-host and I was like, there is no way that's the same Anthony Johnston that I know of, because <laughs> you mentioned earlier, I've been reading comics since like 1980. And uh, I first met Anthony through Alan Moore's The Courtyard from Avatar Press. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Anthony, uh, I, man, I remember reading that. I was sitting in bed next to my wife. We're just reading books, getting ready for the night. And I finished it and I just set it down and I was silent for a minute. And then I just turned and looked at her, and she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I just read the scariest comic I've ever read in my life. Um, because the Cthulhu mythos gets in your head. And yeah. I you know, picked up every Alan Moore adaptation, and you just happen to adapt all of his works. So The Courtyard, Hypothetical Lizard, Lie to Thy Countenance, um, you know, another suburban wow. romance. Uh, and then, you know, and then Warren Ellis, I remember him uh, talking about your wasteland and he talked about that collected edition that Oni released that hardcover. And he goes, that is the best presentation I've seen in a graphic novel. And I ordered it immediately. So all this to say is all, I was already a fan. I wasn't aware of your video game stuff. I just was aware of your graphic novel stuff. And then to hear you on the podcast, just it really made my day. 
um, just having both of you guys. And so from there, uh, I jumped on the incomparable because you had mentioned them. I am a faithful incomparable listener every week. Uh, love, love, love unjustly maligned. Miss it. I was a huge fan of Loom back in 1990. That's one of hey. my favorite shows that you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then Brian listened to Power Chords as a result. And I remember, um, you know, like Michael Sweet's 10. I remember you, album of the year. And it just, it surprised me how much that album blew my mind and what a real deal that guy is. So all that's to say, it's Dreamland Podcast got me into you guys and then just kind of kept going from there. Well, you shout out to, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. shout out to Melinda. And I, I want to say that Melinda, one of the things that we talked about early on was that unjustly maligned episode, like prior to even recording, a, you know, a podcast together and stuff like that. But it like the, I don't even know if you know this already, but like Anthony and I know each other because of a comic book podcast that I did way back in the day. I and, remember you guys saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, Power Chords, which I do with Matt Herring. We had done a we did a comic book podcast for eleven plus years, and it was because of that. And and actually, Anthony, who I always go back and, and tell anyone, like when podcasting was really just starting, Anthony was so far ahead of so many other comic creators in terms of leveraging podcasting as a way to do grassroots marketing for your books. And so it was because Anthony was one of the first creators that ever reached out to us when we were doing our comic book show, which was called Secret Identity. That's how our relationship started was around was around Wasteland and around comics. And then just over the years, then when I started covering uh, video games for comic book resources, Anthony was well into doing video game work. So we were talking about Dead Space and stuff like that. But like all of that stuff was so established for so many years before we ever got around to talking about music, which is kind of wild. And then now here we are. I mean, what has it been seven years now? Seven years. Think, yeah. Uh, that we've been doing this show. So it, it, I think I know, I don't want to speak for Anthony, but I forget about that stuff all the time Yeah. until I stop to think about like what a long road it's been. Cause we've probably known each other now since I'm going to say like 2008, at this point, which is just right. insane. Uh, two, uh, 2006, because that's when we launched Wasteland. Holy crap, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, just, so getting close to 20 years already. Isn't, like, I don't even know what to think about that. Like, I don't, like that, <laughs> that just absolutely, but, but it's like we lived this whole other life, uh, you know, around the comic book stuff before yeah. we ever started talking about music. And so, like, I, I, now... I don't, right. I mean, I don't think I even knew that you were a heavy metal fan until we did that Unjustly Maligned episode. <laughs> I'm, not sh I'm not sure if I actually knew that before then. I don't think so either. And then it was like... <laughs> and then with the reaction to that one episode that ended up being sort of the spark of what would then go on to become this show. Um, but just the fact that, you know, you're coming in through Dreamland and... It just like yeah, there's so many different layers to that that is just absolutely wild to me. Um, well, and Anthony, did you know that Brian's a Megadeth fan? Did you figure that out? On that <laughs> really? Good lord! Well, I, oh, I didn't know it. I them yet. This show is over. <laughs> uh, so, but can I, I see it? seven times before we started recording today? <laughs> yes. Hey, there's more. I'm going to do some references here in a minute. Um, a couple things, you know, to your point about how long you guys have known each other, I think that that's why I love Thrash It Out so much is your discussion. I don't care if I've never listened to that particular album ever or if I ever will again. I always, always enjoy your respectful discussions with each other. It's just, it's fun that you guys celebrate music that moves us. 
Um, and I, I love, you know, gosh dang, when you did Pride from White Lion, Brian, I just was like, oh my God, you know, Antony's going to eviscerate him. Like, I just, you know, <laughs> to be that raw. And it's like, I love that. I love, love that we can be vulnerable and say, hey, this is the music that moves me. I just want you to listen to it and, you know, just process it with me because I like you. I like your opinion, you know. And you guys have a really great rapport that's very respectful. And uh, these conversations are always such a delight to listen to. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. almost a parody at this point of like the metal arguments, right? Because it's really never been uh, an argument. Although there are plenty of albums and songs and bands and and you know styles that we certainly disagree on. But yeah, the yeah, irony but, of that particular episode was that Anthony was much nicer than the comment section of the actual yeah. <laughs> in the Facebook. Group, that's true. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the line, metal polite uh, disagreements doesn't really have the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> well, you're you're an English gentleman. I mean, aren't you polite by nature? Isn't that just how it goes? <laughs> <laughs> Only when I'm on mic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so really quick, and I know this has nothing to do with rock and roll, but it is, it is comic books. You adapted The Courtyard, and then Alan Moore was so, I think, taken by it that he went on to do the sequel, uh, Neonomicon. And then from there did Providence, which was both a prequel and a sequel. And I'd just been dying to know if you'd read those. I have. I was actually supposed to do a story arc in Providence when it opened up to other authors. I was scheduled to do... Uh, a six issue story arc in that but unfortunately it was right around the time that atomic blonde was taken off and i just could not you know i could not find the the time unfortunately to spare but i was always a bit sad about it because i had some you know some grand ideas and i've always been grateful to alan for letting me do all those adaptations and being so supportive because it really you know did a lot for me it opened a lot of doors uh and Alan and I became friends, which is amazing. Like, does, That's so you know, cool. I've mentioned oh. that before. That just ble- as a kid who grew up reading Alan in 2000 That's- AD, the fact that I, if I wanted to, I could just call him up. Well, I regularly do. Well, not regularly, insane. but I sometimes do. I'd normally call him on his birthday and wish him a happy birthday. You know, we're at that sort of stage. But the fact that I can do that blows my mind, you know, because I am just as much of a fan as anybody else. Anthony, I can't even tell you how cool that is. Like, you're such a lucky dude. Can I ask you guys, you know, going back to defining metal and whatnot, that was one of my favorite conversations that you've had. And I think that that was the Pride podcast. Um, Just, you know, it's hard putting labels on stuff, right? Because I remember when alternative music came into the scene, all of a sudden the record stores, the alternative section, quote unquote, was 90% of the store. Like, I remember seeing Metallica under the alternative headline. In other words, labels and genres just seem designed to sell products right um and so growing up you know van halen was thrown in as the heavy metal and and i like hearing your guys's broadening definition of what what that means and can i ask you i mean what what do you call metal how do you succinctly tell people what metal is (laughs) (laughs) succinctly (laughs) (laughs) yes in five words or less I mean, I've often, so my my sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely, is young people with loud guitars screaming about how terrible the world is. Mm. That's my go-to definition of heavy metal. And, you know, so far throughout the years, that's, that's held up pretty well, I think. I think for me, if I was to boil it down to five words, and I think this is five words... (laughs) <laughs> it is a heavier version of rock 
that's how I, if I had to just keep it to, to five uh, to five what words, makes right? It heavier. What makes it heavier, though? That's the question. Well, I, I think yeah. that's open to interpretation because for me, sometimes what makes it heavier is the emotion. Um, sometimes what makes it heavier is the power of the vocalist. Sometimes what makes it heavier is the guitars, or you know, is are are the instruments. But to me, um, I, I think that heavy is actually a broader definition than metal. Um, you know, for yes. me, what makes something heavy, like I, I've listened to songs from Cake that I think are some of the heaviest things I've ever heard. Um, and no one would have ever accused them of being, you know, even a rock, well, maybe a rock band, but but certainly not uh, anything even closely approaching what we would normally think about as metal. And so, yeah, so for me, uh, I'll go back to the visceral, you know, reaction that we talked about before. There's, uh, it, it is a, it is a heavier visceral reaction, I think, for me, whether that's whether that's more aggressive or it's more technically proficient or it's more um, or the composition of it comes together in a way that feels heavier to me, um, which is where I think like we talked about how like metal is kind of mainstream nowadays. I mean, people are always pushing the boundaries of of how extreme metal can be. Right. And I think that's where some of those things, when metal becomes mainstream, sometimes we get those boundaries that get pushed even more because people want to want to get outside of that mainstream. Right. They want to still identify with the, the sort of outsiderness of, of metal in that way. But yeah, I mean, for me, it like my pathway to metal was through rock and it, to me, it was, it was, in some ways faster it was some ways louder it was some ways um more aggressive and to anthony's point like you know screaming loudly about the things that are wrong with the world i think um i think just from the time period that i grew up i mean we're all around the same age like in general rock and what we would probably consider to be hair metal was about sex drugs and rock and roll and celebrating and partying and all of those kind of things and i think what we probably associate more with metal was a, a darker it it was uh it was screaming about the things that were wrong in the world right when you put up um you know peace cells versus um nothing but a good time right there those are yeah. those are two very different pictures that are being sort of painted there right or anarchy in the uk or, or something like that and so um i think that also, um, for me, it's that uh, there's, a, there's another level of catharsis, I think, with um, with that darker, more aggressive side, because it's it's sort of tapping into that, like getting getting the darkness out sort of thing. Whereas, um, you know, certain elements of like hair metal and, and what I would probably think more of as rock are more aspirational <laughs> like you know you know just sort of like lighter in tone yeah well how do you define it john well it, it's just this is all great because when you talk about the heaviness of lyrics you know you can't say that johnny cash is heavy metal but man there's some dark sounding songs that yeah. take me there right and that's that's why it's such a slippery definition um you know metal to me because you talk about the darkness it's like man i'm i'm really a joyful guy i like having fun i like having a smile on my face and i like banging my head while doing it right i like the energy that that rock and metal gives me makes me feel like i can do anything and i want to do anything right i like to run i like to drive fast i like to uh when i'm working out on the property um it just makes me enjoy life and so what makes metal metal to me it's 
if you can compound that much energy into four minutes, right? It's like a pure shot of adrenaline. And the metal sound itself to me, it's you gotta have drums, bass, and guitar, and it's gotta be loud. And that's almost the basic definition for me, right? And you can argue, well, rock can fit in there. And that's where it gets stupid. You're arguing about semantics, rock and metal. I think we all agree what the feeling is. Right. Well, it's, I'm going to stop you right there because that's what I think that's what it all comes back to. Whatever whatever it is that you're looking to feel, it makes you feel right. Yes. And so whatever flavor of that that you're putting on the radio or you're throwing in the CD player, you're putting on your MP3 player or whatever is is what you're looking to feel at that point. And sometimes you're looking to feel a catharsis of like, you know, letting go of frustration or anger. Sometimes you're looking to feel empowered, like you can do the thing that you need to do. Um, you know, Twisted Sister, like one of the most empowering bands of all time. Like, a, yeah. you know, I Am, I'm Me is one of the greatest songs in the, in the in, in, to me, the history of rock and metal. And so like, there are definitely, um, I will often sort of start the day or wherever, I, you know, if I'm jumping on the treadmill or whatever, it's like, what am I looking to feel right now? What do I want to tap into, right? Um, and I think it, there's music to provide that. Well, maybe the one common denominator in whatever we call metal or rock is it's not easy listening, right? You don't play it for a mixed crowd. If your grandma's in the room, you're probably less likely to turn it up to 11. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's like that's there's a certain amount of people that will listen to loud music with you. Usually it's either in a concert or a kind of a solitary experience. It's not you just throw it on the jukebox and everybody's gonna stop and listen to it, you know. Um well, you know I, what yeah, I mean? That, it's, not easy, it's not popular. That's Go a ahead. that's a good one because like even, you know, the stuff that is more not extreme, but you know, that sort of that people go, oh, I'm not sure if that's metal or not, uh, you know, because it might be a bit lighter or a bit more melodic or whatever, actually does, yeah, does kind of come under that, like you say, you're not you're not putting it on as background music in polite company, are you? <laughs> right, right. right. And you know. guys, uh, by the way, thank you so much for this. Uh, one more thing I wanted to say before we moved on, just going back to defining metal, and as a 47-year-old dad, um, just watching, you know, I'm raising kids in a world that is different from what I grew up in, but is the spirit of metal still there, right? You know, how can I relate with my kids? Because this is very much a part of who I am. And I mentioned my oldest son with the hip hop and and I celebrate him and, you know, encourage him because he likes it. But my middle kid, Luke, has been playing uh, a game called Terraria and yep. uh, another game called Geometry Dash. And he watches a lot of YouTube clips of people you know, creating their own levels or whatever. And what's interesting is the music that these creators use. And he's been playing me, he goes, Dad, you know, I wanna play you this song. He played me this song by a guy named DM Dokuro called Raw Unfiltered Calamity, which is the most metal name ever for a song. <laughs> um, and it was basically power electronics. I don't know how to describe it, but it is a fast tempo, crazy, epic song that fits perfectly for this insane video game that i could never play in a million years and i listened to it and i said luke that sounds like metallica and i said the spirit of metallica is 100 in this song this is epic it's driving it's full of energy um the melodies the rhythms the percussion goes in so many directions i was blown away by it right and so i'm looking at like so what's modern metal and that spirit is still there. And here's my 11-year-old kid getting exposed to it. So I played him Metallica. He loved it. Now get this, Brian. You'll appreciate it. A couple of days ago, or a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, running errands, and he goes, "Luke, my 11-year-old goes, do you like Megadeth?" And I said, "Yeah." And he <laughs> you're goes, like, "Who doesn't?" Yeah. He goes, "What do you like about him?" So I told him my experience. 
And he goes, well, do you have any on your phone? And I just handed him my phone and uh, he's, he's cycling through and he couldn't find a song he was looking for. He, he searches for her tornado of souls. <laughs> I from rest in peace. For that too. I, I honestly, if I've heard it before, I didn't know it was called tornado of souls. I didn't recognize it. And it blew my mind. And he, I said, where did you hear this? And he goes, this was on, you know, one of his video games. Somebody had created a level and they put tornado of souls on there. And we listened to tornadoes of souls back to back in the car ride together. And I was thrilled, thrilled that my 11 year old exposed me to Megadeth. Right. <laughs> How does that happen? That is well, awesome. what's cool about that, too, is that I would imagine that one of the reasons that they were using it is because that's widely considered to be one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. And seems to be talking so about Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, Marty Friedman recently reunited with Megadeth when they were in Japan to play One Night. Uh, and that was one of the songs that they played because it's considered to be his best solo on it's widely considered to be, I think you can make the argument, but, um, but that's freaking awesome, man. Like, I, I love that. I love that kids are finding that music through the medium of video games, which they, you know, and just the way they consume them, right. Watching people create, um, levels yes. in video games, watching people play video games, obviously, you know, streaming is such a huge thing nowadays. And so, um, however they find it. And I think th that's another thing. I mean, just to go back to as we kind of close out the, you know, how do we define this stuff? And, and we've talked about this on the show. Like, I think to me, those types of conversations and labels and um, kind of guideposts are helpful if they bring people in. And yeah. as soon as they start to keep people out, I think that's where they lose any value for me. And so I think, but I love the fact that we're constantly sort of reevaluating for ourselves, like how do we define this thing? And I think that's one of the things that attracts us to it is like, it's a little bit different of a definition for everybody. And it's like, it's something, right? It's this, it's like this cosmic force that, you know, we're all, we all know that we love it and we love different things about it and all this thing, but it's really hard to define. And I, and I kind of love that it's hard to define um, in that way because it really, it leaves it open for more people to come in. And that's hey. what I appreciate about thrash it out is because there is that you're willing to have that conversation. I mean, my gosh, you've covered, you know, quite a variety of stuff just in the seasons. <laughs> it, you know, and I would bring it down to this is that unbridled joy in a loud, hard song, man, that is um, a high that I'm always chasing. So here's one thing, just, yeah, the last thing before we move on to the album that I want to say, what I love about that story, or one of the things I love about the story, I think it was in just in the last episode we did, where we were talking about the difference between people who like music and people who are into music. And somebody who watches, like, uh, you know, a gameplay video on YouTube, and what they one of the things they take away from it is going like, Man, what was that background music? I really yes. want to hear that. Yeah. That's a yeah. good sign. That is, that tells me that your kid is into music. That is yes. that's that's exactly the sort of thing that I would have done that I do still do sometimes. Like I hear the music somewhere and I go, "What the hell is that? I've got to find that." So that's great. It, it made right. me feel like I was doing something right, but I had nothing to do with it. But it's <laughs> nice to have something in common, you know. I, uh, it all goes in. You must have done something right. All right, well, let's move on then to, uh, yeah, the actual album. So tell us what is the album that you have come on the show to talk about today and why it is important to you. Well, you know, you had asked me, I think, last August about this and things didn't line up. So I had some time to chew on it. And, um, you know, I... I I know that it'd be helpful to have a band you've never had on there before. 
Um, and I consider Danzig. I'm a really big Danzig fan. I'm really hoping at some point they get recognized. Um, Jane's Addictions, Ritual Day, Little Habitual was 100% on the radar. But the truth of the matter is, is I had to represent Van Halen. Uh, their 1980 album, Women and Children First, their third studio album. Uh, today they've got 12, so this is way back in the day. Women and Children First. And and what is it? Uh, why is this album in particular? Like, why did you choose it ultimately, and why is it important? All right. What, what does it mean to you in your life? Yeah. So that awakening as I got into hard rock and heavy metal, I think really solidified with Van Halen. Van Halen was the first band that I was one hundred percent all in on. Um, I. I discovered them in 1991 with the song called Pound Cake from their For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album. And uh, and I, that is a really heavy tune. The drums are killer on there. Uh, Andy Johns, who produced John Bonham's drums on, in Led Zeppelin, produced Alex Van Halen's drums. So there's just this heavy, 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 heavy drums and just killer guitar, of course. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I've heard of Van Halen, but I, this song is something. Um, and my buddy goes, well, if you like Van Halen, try this. And he hands me Women and Children first. And you got to understand, you're going from 1991 Hagar to 1980 Roth, right? You think there's just this giant disparity. But to me, it was Van Halen. It was like, great, give me this next Van Halen album. And I just devoured it and loved it. And the nice thing when you've got you know nine albums you've never heard before is you get to do a deep dive into their catalog and listen to every single one of them. And out of everything, I think that Women and Children first – best represents what Van Halen means to me. Um, just if I was to point anybody to one album saying, this is why I like them, it's this. It's not commercially successful. There's no known hits. I don't think there's any music videos. Uh, no one talks about it. Um, you know, it's certainly not 1984 and Jump and Panama and Drop Dead Legs. It's not You Really Got Me and all the stuff they're known for. It's just kind of this quiet album that to me... Uh, um, I can't believe how monstrous it sounds. I cannot believe the energy in this album. And you know, bringing it back to thrash it out, you know, Brian, one of my favorite um, things that you do is the whole respect your elders vibe, right? You know, we're looking at a lot of really great bands, but who came before them? And I think that Van Halen doesn't get enough respect, not from you guys, but just generally in the conversation, doesn't get brought up enough because they, they became so popular, because they've had so many pop songs. Um, and I want to look at them in the history of, of heavy metal, of hard rock, of thrash even. Uh, in 1980, when this album came out, like, who was influenced by this? You know, this was a full four years before Kill 'Em All came out, right? Uh, you know, this was still at the tail end of disco when rock was considered dead. And the stuff that they came up with on this album, uh, to me, I mean, I, I loved it at age 15, but at age 47, like, I still love it. The second I put it on, I want to drive really fast. You know, I want to go running. Um, you know, so Van Halen in general was the band that I really built my identity around. And this album in particular is one I'm just extremely proud of and love quite a bit. Wow. I'd never heard the album before. It won't surprise you to learn. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd never heard this album. I'd never heard anything from it. Uh, but you're right. I mean, in 1980, that's like, you know, that's only eight years after Paranoid, for heaven's sake. Yeah. You know, that's like, what, three years after um, British Steel? There's that 77, I think, British Steel? Um, so, yeah, you know, it's kind of... Or maybe it was even later than that. Uh, point being, yeah, it's. I think if you take it in that context, it is actually quite uh, a surprisingly 
forward sounding album. Like if this had been, re- if you told me that this came out in like 85, uh, I wouldn't have been surprised at all. What did surprise me just overall was how little like stereotypical Van Halen it sounds. Boy. Like there's one track on here and I would say the final track in a simple rhyme is probably like that to me sounds like what I expect Van Halen to sound like, you know, but almost every other track on the album, I'll be like, this is Van Halen. Really? Wow. So I was really surprised and pleasantly surprised, honestly. I'm happy to hear that. You know, going back to that context of 1980, uh, you know, ACDC hadn't really broken it big just yet. Right. Highway to Hell came out in 79 because they needed to like kind of break out in America. And then, of course, 1980s Back in Black. So this came out around Back in Black. Right, right. Right. So, you know, when like I said, when Van Halen was uh, when they arrived, rock was considered dead. They opened for Black Sabbath's uh, Never Say Die. And that is famously the last album that Ozzy Osbourne was on. Right. I, I love that the tour is called Never Say Die and they were dying every night. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because Van Halen opened for them. You know, they were a young, hungry band and rock was considered dead and they weren't dead. Right. Um, yes, I don't mean to oversell it, but I just think that's really interesting that, well, after that tour, Sabbath broke up <laughs> or Ozzy yeah. left. And, you know, then we entered the 80s. And, you know, to your point about, um, you know, Van Halen's sound, I mean, obviously they're a huge influence. There's so many crappy bands that um, borrowed from them or just imitated them. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I mean, there really wasn't a sound like this. And that's what I dig. You know, they were very Sabbath influenced, but they were very pop influenced. You know, when they did yeah. live show, you know, when they're doing backyard parties, they would memorize every song on the top 40 so that they can play any gig. And, and you know, to, to do pop and funk in addition to rock and heavy metal, right? I mean, they covered every single genre. And so they produced something that's unique. And I think that Women and Children First kind of represents that. Just before I, I, I mean, check it, hang on, oh, just ahead. before I throw it over to Brian, I just want to quickly correct myself. I just looked it up. British Steel actually came out the same year. British Steel is 1980, so it's the oh. same year as this album, yeah. Uh, wow. Killing Machine came out in 78. I think that might have been what I was thinking of, because that's the one with Hellbent for Leather on it, which obviously is kind of the the blueprint for Priest going forward through British Steel. Um, but yeah, so contemporary with British Steel, this, which is kind of amazing. And, and, and throwing this over to Brian, and I'll just say this really quick, that I'm just hoping the metal community recognizes this album for, and the, this band for their fight to bring rock and metal to the forefront. And I'm genuinely curious what you guys think, um, especially not being familiar with it. Like that's, that's why I was most excited about sharing this album with you. It's just as someone who's never heard it or rarely heard it, how does this fit in with, you know, the history of metal? Well, I mean, for, uh, I'll just kind of talk about my own sort of feelings and familiarity with it at first. I mean, to me, uh, when I think of this album, I think of better off dead which is yes. a John Cusack wow. movie um, yeah. from five years later that everybody wants some was very much featured in. Um, and to me, like I, you can't think of better off dead without thinking about everybody wants some. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I think for those of us who like truly love that movie, that will always hold a, a special place for them. I think just in terms of like Van Halen in general, Van Halen to me is like the perfect, uh, not maybe not the perfect. I think there are, 
More so than many other bands, I think that their entire sound is often attributed to their greatest hits. And so, you know, Anthony, you just talked about how like it's a a pleasant surprise, right? Because I think when you listen to any Van Halen album, especially the David Lee Roth ones, there's a couple of songs on it that sound like what you think Van Halen sounds like. And then there are six or seven songs on it that sound nothing like what you think Van Halen right. sounds like. Yeah, that's exactly and what happened so, with this album, yeah. 100%, dude. And and I think just in general, like, they're maybe the greatest, greatest hits band, where, like, you can pick up their greatest hits album, and all of those songs sound the same. Not the same, but they sound like I know what that you mean. same They sound like what you're expecting. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And so, um, so clearly, like the songs that resonated the most with the mainstream and became their quote unquote hits, there is a this kind of stereotypical picture of what Van Halen sounds like. I think when you go away from those, so on this album, for me, those songs are the first two. Um, you know, the cradle will rock, and then everybody wants some, and then uh, the last song on the album, I think, especially if you count like the secret song, which yeah. is just like kind of a riff that that sort of ends the album with, right? But like in between all of that, there's a lot of other stuff going on in this album, and I think you know, we talked about uh, you know, them having pop influence and stuff like that. I mean, David Lee Roth is like a 1940s microphone crooner. And yeah. I think that he, you, when he gets to do that more on some of their slower songs or some of their acoustic songs and stuff like that, like his personality shines through even more. And I think some of his best singing comes on those songs where it's not just him sort of adding a screech or a scream at the end of kind of a, a line in their more popular songs. And so like on this one, when you listen to like, could this be magic? Um, you know, take your whiskey home, that kind of stuff. Like he's, he's take your whiskey of, home is by far his best vocal on this album, isn't it? Well, yeah. so, right. And so, you know, you get. I think when when they get away from that stereotypical sound, you get a lot more blues. You get a lot more um, sort yeah. of melodic singing. You've get you get a lot more. Um, but I think what makes their heavier songs great is that. You know, uh, forever unappreciated in this band to me is Michael Anthony and Alex Van Halen as far as oh. their their ability to uh, just, you know, be super jazzy. In They're some- rock solid, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they can just lock down the rhythm in any given song, but there's so much jazz going on in those drums, and in some songs, the bass is really popping and, and just really putting an exclamation point on everything that they're doing. In other places, they're just you know creating this blank canvas for Eddie to kind of paint on, or, or for David Lee Roth to kind of do, strut his stuff and, and bring his character to and stuff like that. And like, this is one of those bands for me that as much as Eddie Van Halen is, is you know, on the Mount Rushmore of guitar players for so many people, I feel like this is a band that it is the sum of their parts that is so much greater than the whole. It's like all of these things working off of one another and working together in some places and contrasting in some places like is really when I feel like this band is at their best. And so like if I was to make a list of my favorite like van halen songs you know on that superficial level it's the songs that you'd find on their greatest hits album but if you want to dig into some of these ones that are not that it's where you can at least where i have found that i appreciate their musicianship 
in their abilities kind of even more. And yeah. so what I like about this album is that, um, and it is not an album that I had a ton of familiarity with other than the greatest hits off of this album was that, um, which I think are the first two songs. Like if, if I, if I haven't looked at Van Halen's greatest hits anytime recently, but I'm sure if I, and they probably have like 10 different greatest hits albums, but I bet if I did the first two songs on this album are the two that get carried forward to uh, Grace hits albums. So I run a tasting room, right? Basically, it's a bar where we sell our cider. And I have framed albums hanging on the wall, and I like to rotate every couple months. And one month I had Women and Children First and their next album, Fair Warning, uh, framed and hang in there. And it's interesting to see customers come in. Like, yeah, most people know who Van Halen is, but almost all of them don't know what those albums are. I mean, it look both of those covers are just weird compared to everything else. And uh, somebody looked at the women and children and said, well, what are the hits off of this album? And I just stared at him. I'm like, technically, there are no hits. Like, I think the first, the first song was released as a single, but it really wasn't a hit. And to your point, Brian, like that does show up occasionally on their best of. But other than that, this album isn't represented at all. Um, just you I'm, know, yeah, I'm not surprised that Cradle Will Rock wasn't a hit, actually, because like I to me, it doesn't sound like stereotypical Van Halen. It's no. it's quite slow. Uh, it's not sort of bomb, not all that bombastic other than in Roth's voice you know his vocal performance is very sort of big and bombastic but the rest of it really isn't and it's a weird song because like the ver musically the verse and chorus have nothing in common like right. they, there is no it's it's almost like they stop and now we're playing a different song um it is so bizarre they are completely unconnected apart from the tempo and I'm sure, you know, most people probably wouldn't consciously think that, but I think when you hear the song, you might have that sort of unconscious reaction going like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. This doesn't sound right. It's really, and it's not that it's a bad song, but yeah, it's not to me the sort of thing that would make a, a pop hit. Unlike, as I said, the last track, say in a simple rhyme, which I could absolutely imagine, you know, being played on the radio. Well, did you guys, can we go by these track by track? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, not in the sort of depth that we do sure. <laughs> on a regular episode. But I was going to ask you, like, what's your fate? What are you? What are your standout tracks on this album? What are your say, like, two best tracks on this? Well, I just want to start by saying the first track is my least favorite song on the album, and I don't like it as an album opener. Um, it's fine. I love that opening riff. It to me sounds like a Veritech fighter taken off from the deck of the SDF one or something like that. <laughs> And if anybody gets that reference, you're awesome. Um, but when I found out that was a keyboard and not a guitar, I remember being just super disappointed. So for some reason, that song just never really did anything for me. Um, it, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think as far as opening tracks go? Because I know that opening tracks are... In, yeah, in no, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it's a good opening track for this album at all. I would have... I mean, it, the album so has it goes up and down and goes to so many different places that it's kind of hard to say, you know, to pick a track that says, "Hey, this is what this album's going right. to be about." Um, I mean, I might have picked "Romeo Delight" as the opening track on this album. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. If I if I was trying to have an opening track that that provided like a broad stroke of what you might experience because like if even like everybody wants some, I think would set a false expectation for right, this album right, if yeah. you put that first. Um, and maybe in the credit where rock does, I don't, I don't, I, I'm it's all not, right with it as an opening tune, but, but yeah, maybe Romeo yeah. delight for me would have been. So 
Romeo Delight is probably my favorite Van Halen song of all time. That is the anchor of this album. That is what I point to when people want to judge Van Halen as a pop band. I say, this is who Van Halen really is. Try to keep up with this song. Try to yeah. keep up. I mean, I think it's, it is it is peak musicianship from everyone in the band. Like, it, the... The drums are insane. They they have just such a great like jazzy feel. The, this is when I was saying like the bass was popping. Like this is song in particular. Yes. You know, I'm thinking yeah. of, but it's got the pace, it's got it's just uh it's just really, really firing on all cylinders. And so yeah, I think that's a great one to be like, if you really want to see how talented these guys were, listen to this song. I mean um, Romeo Delight is the one probably with the the one that has the most uh like pyrotechnics from from Eddie, isn't it? Uh, as or, far or as that, like his, or actually, or is that Falls? Now that I, now that I say that, I suppose it's between those two tracks. For yeah, sort of if you want to, you know, show off. Yeah, the one thing when, when I was listening yeah. to Falls, like I hear I've, over the years, you know, a lot of people compare Van Halen to Jimi Hendrix, uh, and I I like Jimi Hendrix a lot. My dad, it was one of the things that he listened to, and I've mentioned before on the show that you know it was through my dad and his brother that I really got into rock and metal. So I've heard quite a bit of Hendrix and listened to him a lot over the years. And I I'll be honest, I always thought the comparisons were a bit overblown, but then I heard falls on this album where he's diddling around all over the place uh and i was like oh actually no i can see that a lot of this well, sounds like something that hendrix might have played and then when yeah yeah no i agree with that too and i also feel like fools has that sort of led zeppelin uh you know where david lee roth is trying to do mm. his robert plant impersonation in the beginning <laughs> of that song yeah. he, he's um, off lyric expressions uh, throughout that's all the grunts and the wow well, and I, stuff in that song specifically i think he's he's <laughs> you know, he's doing Robert Plant for sure. Almost in like a, I don't want to say a mocking way, but definitely like it's, it's to me, homage. it was like super clear <laughs> that that's what they were going for. And, and that's almost in like the jammy beginning of that song before it really even gets underway, you know? Right. So can I say one of my proudest moments is I, I put Fools on a mixtape. Uh, my mom and I and I would drive around and I that song came on. And every time it did, she would bang her head to that. And I don't ever think I saw my mom bang her head to anything, but that riff, you know, that bump, 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 she banged her head every time. And I took such delight in that. I mean, it's proper rock and roll riff, that, isn't it? It's a, <laughs> For it's sure. Yeah. Full on, like, you know, no messing around. This is rock and roll. Yeah. Um. So can I, let's address the Roth in the room, the 800 pound ego. Um. You just, you know, you mentioned the sounds that he made and stuff. And I think it's really hard to be, a guy who grew up in the eighties with metal and music and um, not have an opinion about David Lee Roth. Right. <laughs> um, it's just really hard to divorce your opinion of who he is today from who he was then. And uh, you know, specifically uh, I think today he's a caricature of who he used to be and he's an annoying caricature of who he used to be, but in his prime to me, this is David Lee Roth in his prime and yeah. no, no mere mortal can replace Diamond Dave as a frontman, right? I mean, I would, well, you said the magic word to to yeah. me, and I think like if I was to make a list of of in terms of rock and metal, like my you know top twenty singers of all time, he wouldn't be anywhere near that list. But if I was to make a list of the top ten frontmen of all time, he would probably be in the top ten for me. Even not being a huge Van Halen fan overall. 
I do think that um, you can't separate him from from this. Like I would argue that uh, I don't even want, I don't want to get in trouble. I mean, we're on with a Van Halen fan. I don't want to get in trouble with Van Halen fans, <laughs> but I feel like I feel like in a lot of ways they made better music overall with Sammy Hagar. But what David Lee Roth brings to this band like elevates every song that he's on. Yes, and I, I, I think the 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 easy way to to look at it is if Van Halen launched their career with Sammy Hagar, they would not be Van Halen. A hundred percent, we wouldn't be talking about them now. And that's yes. no, you know he is a, unquestionably a great singer, much better singer than David Lee Roth. But you need that front man, you know, it, with a band like this, especially you, you need that charisma. And unfortunately, you know, bless him, rest in peace. But Eddie Van Halen was not the man <laughs> with the charisma in this yep. band. You know, again, as like Brian said, I'm not a huge Van Halen fan. I think, you know, that's no secret. Not that I dislike them. I'm just, just never been into them, but I would also, yeah, absolutely. You can't deny yeah. that David Lee Roth is one of the greatest front men in rock history just a- well, incredible you know and in, in this album in particular he sounds like he's having so much fun well yes, it's like right? i said with the crooning stuff like he's he is like when you listen to like could this be magic i mean he does sound like he's having a lot of fun and he yeah just like from a from an overall i think some of his best singing is on this album so it was uh, i would say what anthony said like it was a pleasant surprise to dig into this album because there were a lot of songs that I may have heard before, but definitely had not like sat with and, and spent some time with before. And so I do feel like this is a really good overall album to kind of show why, if you love Van Halen and you love David Lee Roth, like this is a good album to share with people and say, like, I think you're going to get, I think if you can appreciate this, you're going to appreciate why I like Van Halen and why, uh, you know, why I love David Lee Roth. Uh, and you're also going to hear loss of control. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. So, uh, you know, one of my favorite conversations you guys have is about vocalists, right? You know, we got the goblin screaming type of guys, you know, we got, um, you know, all kinds of sounds, right? It just whatever fits the song. And to me, the best front man fits the music. I don't care if it's got a perfect voice or perfect pitch, right. yeah. fit the music. And the sounds that he makes on this album, I think are impossible to replicate. If you put a gun in my head, I could not make the sounds that he makes. And I'm, and they're just they're intangible. There's no words, but just the oh, you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, he he can just freely flow throughout a song and just add what is basically an instrument of his own to it, right? It's just emotion. It's just guys having fun. Well, well there and, was and so, somebody on the Facebook group uh, a month or two ago, don't you remember? Posted like his isolated vocal track from I can't remember what the song was, and it is just like there's barely a moment of silence where he's not going. <laughs> but but like to me like that's where we go back to the bass and drums right and we go back to like the structure of these songs like there's so many if you took him out there's so many places in this song in just van halen's music in general that are like consciously open for him to do that stuff right and then when you when you add in the way that eddie plays guitar and all of that, it's like the work that the rhythm section does in this band to create space 
for both Eddie Van Halen to sound like he's improvising in some ways, uh, you know, on every single song, and also to the way that David Lee Roth is is probably improvising in terms of some of the some of the you know sounds he's making and stuff like that, like just the space that they provide for both of them to do their thing on literally every song is like amazing. I think that's one of the things I appreciate the most about Van Halen is their rhythm section because none of this is possible. Eddie Van Halen it can't be elevated without that. David Lee Roth can't have that space to strut his stuff without that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like, Tremendous ability to create space for them to do that stuff. Brian, as a bass aficionado, and I know that that's one of your favorite things to listen to an album. Tell me what you thought of Michael Anthony on this album. Incredible. Um, for exactly the reasons that I just mentioned, but also when they get into the more jazzier um, sort of side of what they're doing, like he's right there with with uh, Alex, you know, as far as as. Um, making everything pop and really adding a level of uh, complexity to, to what's happening and stuff like that. And where I think that Eddie and part of what makes Eddie Van Halen great is the ability for him to feel unstructured, right. To feel improvised, to feel that sort of raw thing. And you could say the same thing for the way that Roth sings, but these two are, but, I like the same things about about Alex and Michael Anthony that I like about Megadeth. Like they are so tight. They are so in sync and they are so like just technically just absolute all-stars. That and it shines in Romeo Delight in particular. I mean, well, anytime follow- that it's not a wall of sound, it shines, right? Because you can really yes. hear them just uh you can really hear what they're doing and you can hear that level of complexity that you might otherwise miss amidst the screams and the screeches and the distortion and all that stuff. Like everything that we love about the heaviness of Van Halen, like when you peel that back a little bit and you hear what's going on with Michael Anthony and Alex Van Halen, like there is some amazing musicianship from from just a technical tight standpoint that I really appreciate. And there are a lot of places on this album where you can really hear it and feel it. And that's what I think is makes this a nice, like I said, a nice album to sort of share with people of like, you know, give this a listen if you want to know why Van Halen was great, you know. And I think Ted Templeman, who produced it, really needs to be given credit for that. Because I've noticed in subsequent albums without Ted Templeman, you don't hear the bass like you did back then. Like he had a really good way of making sure that all four guys shined and then mixed them together. Um, that just the the bass that he plays during Eddie's solo on Romeo De- Delight is so just keeping up with him, and it's just so driving. It's impossible not to drive 100 miles per hour when you're listening to it, in my opinion. <laughs> um, last thing about Romeo Delight, and then I'll just move on to a couple other favorites of mine. Uh, Brian, you might appreciate this. I saw Van Halen when Gary Sharon was singing for them, and um, as much as you know, he was lamented as a lead singer for Van Halen, the nice thing was, is in concert, he played everything. He covered deep Van Halen cuts, um, stuff that Hagar would never touch. And they played Romeo Delight, and that was, it blew, it, I was speechless. I didn't expect them to play it. And when you hear it live, as you guys know, live is a different deal. Yeah. And uh, boy, it's explosive. There, there was nothing like it. 
Well, I want to pause on extreme for a second because um, I had some notes Sorry. about that that I wanted to sort of get into with, uh, you know, Gary Sharon, like uh, as you mentioned, like that that sort of uh, experiment, a lot of people see as a failure. But one of the things that really struck me listening to this album is just like I I knew that extreme was very influenced by Van Halen. But when you listen to an album like this, you really hear just how much they're influenced mm. by Van Halen. And I think that extreme is the closest thing we've gotten to, to vintage Van Halen. And I think that it's, I mean, obviously Nuno was very influenced by Eddie Van Halen, but there was a recent article in guitar world in March of this year where um, they were talking about, I don't know if you both have heard the new extreme song rise that came out, but the solo that Nuno plays in there, people are already saying like, there won't be a better solo this year from any guitar player than the one that Nuno played there. Like there's, there's longtime guitar legends who are like breaking this solo down on YouTube and stuff like that because it's so good. Huh. And in that article from March, uh, and it's in guitar world, uh, I'll just read a quick snippet of that. It says that Betancourt has already delivered what will probably turn out to be 2023's best guitar solo comes as no surprise, especially when the motivation behind his playing for six, which is the new extreme album, uh, is taken into consideration. Listen to rise and you'd be forgiven for thinking Betancourt was shredding with the future of guitar playing at stake in his own mind. He was. And then this is a quote from him. He says, when Eddie Van Halen passed, it really hit me. Betancourt commented, I'm not going to be the one who will take the throne but i feel some responsibility to keep guitar playing alive so you'll hear a lot of fire on the record and wow. that has come up a couple times in and, and there are elements of that solo that you can hear in some of the solos that eddie plays on this album and so one of the things about nuno is like he's always playing chess when he's writing solos and so you'll hear his homages and you'll hear his callbacks to um obviously eddie van halen in this particular case and so it just it really struck me that you know in a lot of ways they are so 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 heavily influenced by this era of van halen in particular yeah and um yeah. And so like it doesn't like th thinking about it through that lens and then thinking about like Gary Sharon getting to go and play with Van Halen when, you know, he's he had spent his career and now is back together again with this guitar prodigy who is so Eddie Van Halen influenced. You know, it's kind of wild to think that he got to also go play with Van Halen. And in that way, like you cannot blame him for wanting to take advantage of that opportunity, whether or not it worked out the way um, that everybody had hoped that it would or not. But to be able to say that you played with Eddie Van Halen and you've played with Nuno, that's for sure. That's a resume right there. For sure. And you know, that same concert that I saw with Gary Sharon, uh, Alex played the drums to Everybody Wants Some for like a minute, two minutes. And I was wetting myself. I was like, there's no way to play this on that. <laughs> and uh, no, they segued into Panama and I was super bummed out. But Everybody Wants Some, I just want to say that is my favorite Guilty Pleasures song ever. That's the song that you play for Christian moms if you want to just horrify them. Um, I mean, there's just nothing redeeming about it as a song. And I love it. I love uh, everything about it. I love, I love the drums. I love the vocals. I love the the speed up to the guitar. Like right before the solo goes, you just hear Alex do this kind of giddy up sound with the drums, and then it's 100 miles per hour. Um, I love the tongue in cheek lyrics. It's just, it's just guys having fun is what it sounds like to me. 
Go ahead, yeah. Anthony. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that, yeah, musically, it's probably my favorite track on the album. I think musically, yes. it's really, really oh, good. It's, it's great. The, the brooding guitar and the toms to open and everything. Really, really good riff. I mean, the lyrics are well dodgy. I, I understand, obviously, yeah, it's all, you know, the party band sort of lyrics <laughs> stuff. Everybody wants them, man. Yeah, it, it's not really my thing, but, you know, it's done, but it's done and delivered well. If this is what you want, this is a good example of it, you know. But me, even that aside, yeah, just musically and sort of the vocal melodies and stuff yeah i think musically it's really strong that's why like i said i you know i'm actually surprised that they didn't put this out as a single rather than uh cradle will rock to be honest with you because i could have seen this being a hit so go for it you know i think the subject matter maybe has something to do with it i know that you know at the very end i don't know if you're allowed to say bad words on the oh, podcast of course yeah no it's got that whole riff <laughs> in the middle where he's like basically telling yeah. a woman about her stockings yeah i forgot about yeah. that but yeah all and right at the end, <laughs> you know, at the end, he says look i'll pay you for it what the fuck yeah that's and, true yeah, and, yeah. And so you'd have to make a radio edit wouldn't you <laughs> yes well my understanding is like that's the only song displayed on the radio where they let that stay because it's so so low you can hardly hear it oh so, wow yeah right it's just yeah that's uh, crazy so, oh yeah kind of where's the single but one thing that you said that just delights me because i wrote this down is ask antony about dodgy lyrics because i knew you were going to call this one dodgy <laughs> and i wanted to ask <laughs> what do you how do you define dodgy specifically because i have an idea but i want to hear what do you mean when you say lyrics are dodgy well, I mean, it, it depends on the context, but these particular, this the, this sort of music, you know, this era, these sort of bands, it's mostly in the context of just like how horribly sexist it all is. Uh, Got it. And, you know, I mean, I've said before, look, I'm a huge Motorhead fan. Motorhead have written some pretty fucking sexist lyrics in their time as well. So, you know, I'm not kind of i'm not trying to judge anything uh it's just that the combination of those sorts of lyrics with the kind of the good time style of 80s metal is just never for me that's never been my thing you know one or the other i can kind of be okay with but when you put them together uh it's just yeah it turns me off well i I don't know how to put it really other than that it just turns me off and it's harder to respect at our age, right? I mean, when you're 15, which is like the ideal audience, it's great. You you think that they're being clever. Well, um, see, even when I was 15, honestly, I wasn't really... <laughs> I, I looked askance at lyrics like this. I don't know. I'm just too self-righteous for my own good. <laughs> no, I think that you're just a proper gentleman. I'm from the west side of America, where it's Van Halen and parties all the time, apparently. Um, I always... It's, it's, interpreted your dodgy comment as like meaning the lyrics were immature or lazy and it sounds kind of like what you're saying right i mean yes i I don't know whether i don't know whether i'd say lazy because like you know several of the songs here that are like that are actually in terms of you know how they're constructed and the the sort of poetry of the lyrics the lyricism of them is actually pretty well put together so i wouldn't say lazy necessarily you know i'm not going to say that they didn't put hard work into the lyrics but yes the the sort of like i say the the sexism of it uh the kind of the cheap shots if you like just kind of turn me off like the punching down stuff you know yeah sort of yeah yeah, and I, I think there's, you know, when you go over to, you know, what we talk about as metal and stuff like that, a lot of it gets into homophobic lyrics and stuff like that. I think that whole, like, you know, 
what is metal and, you know, you have to be strong and anything less is this and that kind of stuff, I think also for me would qualify as dodgy lyrics. And so, yeah, yeah it's just that, um, you know, it's one thing to to sort of take shots at the people in power. And it's another thing to take shots at the people not in power, you know, or to take shots at or, or to say that someone is less because they're um, they think this way or they do that or, the, or or whatever. And so, yeah, for a lot of these songs, like the immaturity thing, I, there's a million immature lyrics out there. And I think that the whole like party mentality. Right. And just like live for the day sort of thing you could look at as immature. But, yeah, the sexist stuff, the homophobic stuff like that kind of stuff is what um, to me like falls under dodgy for for me. And that makes sense. And one thing I appreciate, because I know you guys are both writers, uh, but Antony, you just mentioned kind of the poetry in his lyrics. I think one thing Roth doesn't get enough credit for, he's a pretty intelligent guy. You know, as silly and vaudeville as he oh, is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, no, and, I've read some interviews with him, like, where it's clear that he's got that he's got the brains, yeah. Yeah, and so, and so some of these lyrics, like, the turn of phrase is so much fun to listen to. And uh, it turns out, so I read this book called Van Halen Rising. It's kind of um, before the before they signed their first album, so just working their way up. And Ted Templeman originally wanted to get Sammy Hagar to be their singer because um, he produced Montrose, so he was familiar with Hagar. But he relented because he liked Roth's lyrics. And I just think that's really interesting that even back wow. then, Sammy Hagar was being considered for Van Halen, but the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the lyrics. Is Roth is a better lyrics writer. And to this day, that is the absolute truth. I, I love Hagar's voice. I can't stand any of the lyrics that he's written. That's that just, is amazing. Wow. I mean, I, <laughs> I, would say, I would say when I think about David Lee Roth, I think more, I think less of the lyrics and I think more of story. Yeah. Where I, as I feel like, you know, he kind of his his sort of frontman showman personality is almost like taking you on a journey, right? Telling you a story. And so I think even when he's doing these little monologues, like no matter what the subject matter is or stuff like that, like it's always like painting a picture, right? It's always like setting a scene. He's always kind of yeah. he's kind of telling a story sort of thing. And so I think the quality of the lyrics themselves i think you could debate but i do feel like he's he's uh you know he's the ringleader you know he's the he's the carnival barker right yes he's the, hosting the party he's, yeah. yes yes he's he's putting on a show and and i think that is what comes through in every you know song that he did with van halen is he's always putting on a show when the song starts the show starts and he's got he's always got something to add to it and so yeah whereas i think to back to sammy hagar like at the time that he came into that band like i feel like stability was what was needed <laughs> you know what i mean like just like <laughs> yeah. a stabilizing force and i think right. that they he provided that right and he he provided um he was a great singer um he he does have his his own charisma he had a amazing solo career too and stuff like that and so but i think when he came in it was stability that they needed whereas uh, david lee roth is the opposite of that he is you know <laughs> nothing he, stable there <laughs> right, he's a tornado he's he's Lester. chaos personified and so so i think there that brings such an energy you know yeah. to every situation that he you're there's an electricity to everything that he does 
I would be remiss if I didn't address, like, I absolutely love Hagar's voice. I love Van Hagar. I love all of that stuff. What I hate is it's so hard to be a Van Halen fan because you bring up Roth or Hagar and immediately um, it's the Civil War. You know, you go to any Van Halen site, it just everything devolves into hating one or the other. And first of all, you know, Eddie Van Halen's dead. Uh, second of all, you know, these guys, they already produced all these albums. You can pick which ones you want to listen to. At the end of the day, I love both of them. I love Van Halen, but there's no one like David Lee Roth. There's just, you can't escape that. That's his own deal. And you can't revisit it, you know, as a vaudeville Las Vegas act. He's not the same. Right. It, you can't you can't capture that. It came and it went. You know? It is it, it is unfortunate because I think the the way that you'd like to and it sounds like the way that you look at it, but the way that you would love for people to look at it is how blessed are you as a Van Halen fan to have both of those eras and yes. to have all of that music to go back. I mean, I look at Anthrax with John Bush and Joey Belladonna. I mean, to have had those albums with John Bush even if you think that Joey Belladonna is the best singer that Anthrax ever had, I mean, to have, I freaking love the John Bush era of Anthrax, and I love the Joey Belladonna era of Anthrax. And, and have they performed with both singers? Haven't they done any shows where they had both Joey uh, Belladonna and John Bush? I could have sworn there was. I, I would, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say absolutely not because I haven't looked it up and I haven't checked, but given the animosity. Oh, okay. Or acrimony, I should say, with which John Bush left, I would be very surprised. I mean, okay. they there is the song in Attack of the Killer Bees, Ball of Confusion, where they're both singing on that song. And so there is, uh, and they may have done one thing together, but yeah, I mean, I think what happened was when the whole reunion talk started and all that stuff, and I'd have to go back and look at the exact series of events, but... It, you know, John Bush got kind of pushed to the wayside in that situation, and there definitely are not good feelings about that. Although I feel like in recent years, now that Armored Saint is kind of back, you know, and and running on all cylinders and stuff like that, I, I think so maybe he, things have mellowed a bit. I think he's mellowed a little bit about that. I know, but I know, like you know, when Belladonna first joined back, like they wouldn't play the Bush era songs there, right. and yeah, I was you say, can't it's find not a just- copy. It's not just John Bush who's like, you know, this is not a one-sided spat. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't find a copy of Greater of Two Evils now, which is when they went back with John Bush and re-recorded a lot of their early stuff, like Live in the Studio, which was an incredible collection of songs. Oh, has that been deleted um, now? Yeah, you, it's not on any of the streaming services or anything. I have the, the actual CD somewhere in my house, but you can't, um, it's not easily available anymore. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's kind of like Pantera's early albums. Right. <laughs> you can't <laughs> and, find that stuff. And maybe I'm misremembering it. I guess I, I was under the impression that maybe there was a chance that both singers would get together. And I remember just as a Van Halen fan, fantasizing. I was like, that's a, such a great idea. You've got decades of stuff. Why not do a concert where you got everybody together? And my understanding is before he died, there was talk of a kitchen sink tour with Van Halen where they had Hagar singing his songs, Ross singing his songs. There was even talk of maybe Sharon showing up. Um, I wish oh, wow. that- be like the well, like the Halloween yes. uh, tour, <laughs> which I will tell you was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had at a concert. Is seeing that Halloween reunion tour that was insane. Yeah, that's the bummer when you got two singers is that one refuses to sing all these other songs that you wish they would, but they can't. Yeah. You know, um, hey guys. Just really quick, I am dying to know just your thoughts. And Anthony, you mentioned a little bit about loss of control, but what do tracks five and six sound like to you just on first 
blush. Um, Torah, Torah, and loss of control. Because well, to- really Torah, Torah, I like just fine. Because I mean, it's just an instrumental, isn't it? Loss of control. I don't dislike it, but it is such a weird track, especially yeah. for Van Halen. Like it is, you you can't easily sing along to it. You certainly can't dance to it. Uh, it's just, and it's not really much of a sort of showcase for uh, for Van Halen's guitar playing either. It's just such an odd track. Well, I don't know. Here's the notes that I wrote down for this song. Uh, number one, the vibe pers- perfectly matches the title, right? It feels <laughs> like it, it <laughs> yeah. feels like you're um, the the song is kind of like careening around a curb at the uh, around yeah. the side of a cliff, and it could fall off at any moment. Like they're they could lose control of the actual song. Um, it has elements of like that classic Van Halen sound in it. But I also put like the voiceover, the storytelling, like I said, the the note I made was like DLR is the ultimate showman, like just the whole goofing around, you know, yeah. playing characters, um, you know, having fun with it sort of thing like that. That's what I'm talking about with the whole like side of Van Halen that you get glimpses of in their quote unquote greatest hits. But I feel like there's this is. This is the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen, like in a nutshell to me, is like that. Yeah. Like you're you're sort of uh, in for a penny, in for a pound sort of thing, right? Like if you're going to if you're going to get him at his best where he is like um, accentuating the best parts of a song with his, you know, with his screams and stuff like that and that sort of stuff, then you're also but you're also going to get the cartoon character stuff where he's just kind of goofing around and, and having fun sort of thing. And like it's all part of the ride. And that's kind of what I feel like about this song. Now, I lack the vocabulary that you guys do as far as describing music. But the very first time I heard Torah, Torah, and let's be fair, that's just an intro really to Loss of Control. It's not a separate song. Yeah. This is back when you had to pad albums by saying you have nine tracks instead of eight. And by the way, this was only a 33-minute album, which yeah, was right, a lot a of short fun. I want to start with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... When I first heard Torah Torah, like it just sounds like doom rock to me. Like to me, you hear their Sabbath influence. Definitely yeah, Sabbath. Totally, uh, yeah. totally Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. And and that that was what was the surprise. Is like, wow, people usually don't equate Van Halen with Black Sabbath. Yet they were heavily influenced by them. Obviously, open for them. And this track has got that heaviness. There's just this doom rock sound to it. And then it kicks into what I feel like is um, proto speed metal. And I was curious where you thought this this song landed in the genre of metal or anything like that, because it's it is so fast, it is so unusual, and a lot of uh, exhausting energy. I don't know because the riff isn't it like it is fast, yes, but it's not a, a sort of you know a, a, it's not a speed metal style riff. Like it's barely a riff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, you'd say it, that it might be surprising to hear them doing, you know, something that sounded a bit like Sabbath or whatever. But again, think of the time. 1980. He's only eight years after Paranoid. There aren't that many heavy metal bands around. Yeah. There aren't yeah. that many bands doing this sort of music. So I'm not, I wasn't at all surprised to hear something that was so obviously influenced by Sabbath, to be honest, just because of the, the time period that it was recorded in. So what is then? What is loss of control besides your least favorite track on the album? Like, how would you describe it? Is it you know is rock and roll a sufficient enough title? And I know we don't have to parse too much, but it is an unusual unusual track for me. Yeah, I don't know, an experimental track, I guess. Yeah, I think, but I think like I think experimental is a lot of David Lee Roth Van Halen. 
You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like you could find a song like this on all of their early albums. Maybe not this exactly, you know, the vibe of this, but I do feel like that. Um, but a song where you're going like, what the hell is going on here? But just kind of like yes. all over the place and then him, be, you know, him, uh, Roth doing his thing and just kind of like, you know, and, and again, maybe part of it is, and I remember reading this and I'm sure, John, you would know better than we do, but like the first uh i pulled it from another article i forget which one i was looking at but um there was an interview or an article that i was kind of looking at where they talked about how fast they recorded these albums and so for this particular album uh it was guitar player magazine eddie van halen said we finished the music in six days and the whole album including mixing took eight jeez uh, he said, I don't understand how people can take any longer. <laughs> and then David Lee Roth said, um, I don't think we'll ever be confused with Fleetwood Mac or Steely Dan, who spend millions of dollars and years in the studio <laughs> just to make one record. Um, and that was to hit Parader, he was talking. And it said, how boring can you get, man? I like to think that all we're really trying to do is capture some of our youthful enthusiasm. Right. And exactly. so I think what all of this sort of Roth era, especially the, you know, the earlier albums is like, for most bands, this would be their first draft, right? Yeah. They would go in, they would have their ideas, they would record some stuff, and then they would fine tune it. And then they, some of the stuff they would lose and some of the stuff they would change and some of the stuff they would bring more in line with what the overall direction of the song should be and stuff like that. And it seems like for these early Van Halen albums, like they're just not interested in doing that. They go in, they do the thing, and they get out. And yeah, and then they go tour, right? And, and like they don't think about it too much, you know? And like part of it, I kind of admire that it like it is what it is. Like, yeah. What would version three of Loss of Control be like, right? Well, we right, went in right. and during the eight days that we first recorded, we we did this. And then we sat down and listened to Loss of Control and we we're like, you know what? Let's rein it in a little bit. Let's yeah, let's tune it up a little bit. Let's tighten it a little bit and stuff like that. And just like for these early albums, they're just like, no, that is what it is, man. And we're rolling with well, it. And and I kind of to me that that goes back to the whole like it's all part of the ride. Like that is the vibe. That it's just and that's like, rock and roll to me, right? I mean, there's there's very that real re punk attitude about it, right? It is raw. It's a raw sounding thing. And to your point, you know, back then the the studios they wanted a new album out immediately, and these guys yeah. did six albums in six years. Well, and because I that was the schedule, you put out an album every year yeah. back then. That was how it worked. And you toured immediately. So, like, as soon as you're done touring, you went back in, you cut another album, um, and to be able to like keep being you know at least inventive <laughs> and interesting and trying something new um my theory guys and i i agree with you about loss of control i i really love it but it's such a weird song as a drug and alcohol counselor i'm well aware of eddie van halen's alcohol use and i also know that he used a lot of cocaine at one point and cocaine and alcohol combined it's called cocoethylene cocoethylene which is a crazy insane insane combination and that's what this song sounds like to me it genuinely sounds like four guys in the studio with a lot of alcohol and a lot of cocaine um, and just going insane. And they captured it. And like it or not, like I love the energy of it, but they definitely captured them in the early 20s when you could do something like this. Yeah, you're right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like he said, you know, uh, 
I like to think we're really all we're really trying to do is capture some of our youthful enthusiasm and, yeah. you know, interpret that how you will. But it but it really is like like if I put out a book of short stories and they were all my first draft and two or three of them ended up being something that I was remembered for and people thought was really amazing. Like, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's when you think about their like track record when they're going in and recording an album in eight days. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be said for it. A lot of albums that I like were recorded really quickly. Like I am, there's a a couple of early REM albums and uh, the Chronic Town EP that were recorded. Yeah, in like you know six or seven days or something. Um, I mean, there's I think the first album they insist the studio was booked for. 12 days i think but the band insists that they took three of those off to like you know go to the movies uh, um and even then you know as if like 12 days is too long you know right. as, as if that's like wow you slackers um yeah there's and there are quite a few other albums like that as well i really tend to really like albums like that that are just kind of do you know what fuck it let's not polish it too much let's not uh, rework it until all the energy has yeah, gone I mean, out of it. Because, you know, we t- we mentioned Def Leppard earlier, right? But, like, they got to a point in their career where they produced their albums into oblivion. Yeah. Yes. Like, you look at an album like Adrenalize, yeah. and it is so, so, like, I, what what would the first version of that even sound like? Or even yeah. I'll listen to Hysteria, and I think, man, there is such a heavier version of this album yeah. to be pulled out of this than what we got. Uh, and it would be so great to go back and hear that. So I, I do like um, this idea of like not overproducing or, or, or really not overthinking it. Yes. It's like yes. we have these ideas. We have a general vibe we're going for. We're going to go in and lay it down, man, and then get out of there. And and like and we're going to do another one next year. So if a few of the songs <laughs> yeah. don't, you know, if a few <laughs> yeah. of the songs don't end up as uh, remembered for being the greatest in our catalog, who gives a shit? We're coming back in twelve months, and we're going to do another one of these. And like, I think when when we get these bands who, you know, now at the age that we're at, we can look back at a at a robust discography. You appreciate these things even more. Because they are those little snapshots of time and they are those things that, you know, it's awesome to look like using Def Leppard. It's awesome to be able to go back to their first three albums and and just see how raw and amazing those things were. And people can still enjoy the later stuff. But like the fact that you get all of that within one band's, you know, lifespan is awesome. Well said. I think that it can't be overlooked to look at these albums in context. You know, that's why I said, hey, this was in 1980. Right. Let's remember where we were in 1980. Where was music in 1980? This is one of six albums they did in six years. Right. Um, and, you know, it's in such a short period of time, like you said. And then to have such a diversity of tracks. I mean, this album is kind of all over the place and not in a bad way. It's just it it has a lot going on. Um, and if that's a first pass for some of the stuff like, wow, that's they had a lot of stuff going on. They had a lot of energy. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, I think we we should start to wrap this up because <laughs> we've gone quite long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as I wanted usual. to say, like, as somebody, as I said, you know, I'm not that familiar with Van ha- Van Halen at all. You know, I know the hits, yeah, and I've seen that live video, but that's pretty much that's about it. Watch if people like this album. What other Van Halen albums should they check out that are kind of yeah, you know, in similar vein? Absolutely. The next album, Fair Warning. Um, Brian, you mentioned that last track at the end of this um, 
at, at the end of uh, Could This Be Magic? And it was originally, that riff was supposed to, on the original vinyl and cassette, it actually faded out. It didn't come to a hard end. And it was supposed to segue into the beginning of the next album. That was their original thought. So there was some sort of linkage between the two. That got abandoned. But Fair Warning to me is just the next evolution of this. In fact, it was a toss-up between these two albums when I was trying to pick which one to get. Um, Fair Warning is considered a darker album. Uh, Eddie Van Halen sounds angry to me when he plays it. I think that um, there's really no obvious hits. I think Unchained is the one that they're most famous for. But other than that, it's it's just angry Eddie Van Halen stuff. Um, sorry, my dog just walked in as I'm saying that. That's Fair warning. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give that a listen then. Yeah, because as I say, this you know I'm I'm not going to say that this suddenly became my favorite album ever or something, but I enjoyed it more than I expected to because it didn't sound like what i expected stereotypical van halen to sound like you know i liked it for that reason uh it, yeah. it was like i said it was a pleasant surprise so yeah i'll give fair warning a listen then yeah i'm kind of pleased to hear that honestly anthony i i hope it wasn't a waste of your time and i'm glad it wasn't no it's the it's never never a waste, never a waste of, time. of time no no yeah it's, absolutely and and for me too i feel like this is uh an album that i developed a much deeper appreciation of it without really having a ton of familiarity of it to be to begin with and um yeah i mean i liked it a lot overall there wasn't really any track on this album that i would say like i didn't like or i you know i thought we should cut from the album or anything like i like the fact that it's got a little bit of everything and there's plenty of moments on this album where i think they every single one of these guys like really shines yeah. If anything, it went too long on Fools. I think it, you can cut 45 seconds off of that and 45 seconds off of And the Cradle Will Rock. And it'll be a tighter That's, album. But yeah. Fool, Fools is one of my favorite tracks on the album. So I disagree. <laughs> so, I think that's just fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like Fools. That's like, yeah. I think and that's one of the best tracks on there. Your, it violates your cardinal rule, though. It fades out. <laughs> right it's a hard end I, i'm shocked i know i know <laughs> well, i know the, but the rest of the, the song is the good enough thing, to <laughs> go on i was just gonna say the other thing too with some of the songs of van halen's that are of longer length a lot of times it's because of like david lee roth doing his you know spoken word stuff or like a little interlude of storytelling what it usually isn't with van halen is just a repetition of the same thing over and over again and I think that's where a lot of songs that kind of overstay their welcome, that's right. where they get hung up, is it's just it's just more of the same thing. Whereas I think with Van Halen, with some of their longer songs, it's because they there's an interlude or there's a spoken word thing, or like in the beginning of Fools, you know, it's David Lee Roth doing his uh, you know, Robert Plant impression or something like that. And so it's like they're it's not it's additive. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's not just repetitive. And I think that's where other bands go astray is they just don't know when to stop with the thing they've already given you. Well, I, I'm glad you said they don't don't know because I, I mean, you know that a lot of I do like a lot of music that is quite repetitive and stuff, but it's with intention. And I think that's the difference. You're right. When bands do it just because they think oh, we've got to fill time here, otherwise the song's only going to be two and a half right. minutes long. That's when things go astray. Yep. I do want to offer a caveat to you, Anthony, as far as fair warning goes. Those are the dodgiest of David Lee Roth's lyrics. This is a whole other thing. Not proud of I, any of those. I have, got, I have gotten very used to ignoring dodgy lyrics, both okay. over my life and especially while doing this show, thanks to a lot of Brian's picks. I, 
<laughs> well, and we're going to be talking about Wasp next episode. So, right, uh, yeah. Wow, <laughs> Christ. You want to talk about dodgy lyrics, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to, and I'm doing this now so that people are still listening, um, I want to r- remind everyone that the this volume's encore poll for the patrons is going to be opening soon we're going to be, i'm going to be opening that in a couple of weeks time uh that is of course another benefit of being a patron is that you get to vote in our encore polls which has us revisit a band that we've already covered on the show but doing a different album uh so yet one more reason to become a patron go to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh and become a patron to take part in that and of course have the opportunity be eligible for random selection on these backstage pass episodes um but yeah, let's wrap that up there. John, thank you so much for coming on and chatting and uh, being such a great guest. Are you online? Are you on like social media and stuff? Can people find you? No, I'm pretty much a Luddite. I'm very analog. Uh, I still listen to vinyl. Um, if you are interested, though, our cidery is called Cedar Draw Cider. Just check us out at Instagram or Facebook, Cedar Draw Cider. There you go. There you go. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and thank you to everybody out there for listening. As always, remember, if you uh, if you enjoy the show, if you like episodes like this, spread the word. Rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and the usual places. As I said, you can go to Patreon dot com slash thrashed out to support the show uh and you can of course chat to us on facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out or go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to email and twitter for as long as twitter exists i keep saying that every episode but it really is going down it feels like it's any minute now doesn't it down and down the tubes every month oh man but yeah again thank you so much john this has been great fellas thanks for the for the opportunity to be a patron i just want to say to anyone listening a buck an episode is nothing and i can't believe i get a chance to talk to two guys i thoroughly enjoy about stuff that i thoroughly love thank you both yeah bless you all right so thank you everybody uh we'll see you next time till then keep thrashing take care everyone Oh!